It's just this kind of hulking shell of of, of heresy and perversion. Um, and property ownership. <laughs> property ownership. Right, right. Hulking shell. Money I, think and, that's, I think that's one of the new uh, villains in the Marvel Universe, the hulking <laughs> shell of, of uh, heresy and perversion. <laughs> Welcome to the Stand Firm podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Anglican Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys? Great. Yep, doing well, Nick. Do you have any thoughts on the ladies' conversation with Elisa Childers from last week? I really enjoyed that. Yeah, I did too. It was, it was, it was every once in a while we let them speak. That's right. Um, <laughs> and, and they seem to have taken... Uh, done done well for that's themselves. Right. That's right. We uh, may allow it again. All right, right. That's right. And just untethered Liza from the, you know, and um, <laughs> they were great. I loved it. I thought it was, um, it was, it was, I couldn't help but, um, like with Anne and Liza and Melinda, um, sort of sympathize with the journey because it mm. was just too close to home. Um, having seen uh, an entire denomination fall the way that that one church did. And I think, you know, I also think that book is important. I'm looking at it right here. And I wish that more people would would heed the warnings. Uh, I wish it were more of a known cautionary tale. I like it because it's one of the fewer ones out there by women that, that are just explicitly calling out theological liberalism, you know, intelligently. And, well, I, I mean, I think I think women... I'm going to make a very sexist comment here, so uh, you might want to edit this out. But I'm going Turn to make up a the sexist volume. comment anyway. Right, right, right. I do think that because typically women have more compassion and uh, more of a nurturing sense than men do, they are more susceptible to uh, very smooth talking, sensitive sounding, kindly, charismatic wolves than than, than men are. And then when men go after those kind, sensitive, you know, smooth-talking uh, wolves, often women are angry at the men who do so. So it's really helpful to have a great apologetic, a great defense yep. against this kind of thing written by written by a woman. Are you speaking? Uh, you're speaking for a friend. Here, yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking <laughs> personal experience. Well, I think that's true, and I've I I think you know the argument. Uh, I mean, this is why there's some complementarity into our psychologies uh, that God has uh, wired us with, because you know the argument that that's mean um, is not as compelling to me as it is to <laughs> Liza. You know, even even with our children, you know, you right. stop, you're being mean. It's like, well, I'm not being mean. I'm I'm being I'm being your father. You know, this is a, and so so I think um, I was grateful for that. I think what I thought was fascinating, which may be a segue, or you already have the segue, Nick, was that she rightly points out the fact that the churches that have even lightly embraced uh, critical race theory and sort of the sociology of the day and the language surrounding it are opening themselves up and susceptible to kind of capitulating on a whole host of mm-hmm. progressive issues, I would say, that are, as of now, off the radar for some of these churches. Um, but as we've seen, uh, when you begin to undermine the biblical worldview and begin to you know, subject your thought to another authority, uh, co-terminus or co-equal with the Bible, well, then eventually that begins to to overpower uh, the scriptures. And so, you know, I just wish, like I said, I, I wish that it were more, particularly for people that have walked through it, I wish that it were more of a cautionary tale. And so I'm glad that they got the word out. And I hope that this book is widely read. You know, yeah. I think it could be easily read as a 
part of a life, uh, a small group or a, um, like a high school apologetics class or something like that. Cause I think it's, it's, um, it's that necessary. Well, let's get into the meat of our conversation today. We're recording this episode on inauguration day. Uh, president Biden was sworn into office about an hour ago. And as I sit here in my sumptuously appointed podcast studio, and by that, I mean my totally normal dining room. Uh, the sun is still shining in the window. Life will go on. The inauguration, though, does bring to completion the long, dark night of the soul that was election season and then election contesting season and then runoff season and so on. And now, of course, we have Trump's presidential advisory 1776 commission releasing its report to stir the pot and cause all the predictable reactions in all the predictable places. Christian nationalism this and white evangelicalism that. There has been much weeping and gnashing of teeth about these phrases and others like them, but what do they really mean? That's what we're going to talk about today. To what do they refer? I thought maybe we could start by breaking down one of those phrases, Christian nationalism. What is the interrelation and should there even be one between one's love of Christ and one's love of country? Well, okay, so the Christian nationalism is, is being used is referring they they're referring to a kind of melding together of conservative politics um especially uh, politics focused on uh, the united states as having this kind of exceptional role to play in in the world uh with i i think uh they're making too broad of a category here but um with uh, the aspect of evangelical christianity that also tends to see the United States as having a God-given mission um, in the world and a God-given exceptionalism with regard to other countries. And those those two kinds of, the, the secular version of that and the religious version of that can be welded together and becoming one thing so that Christians see the fate of the nation in terms of the kingdom of God, in terms of God's eschatological purposes for the world, and not just that, but also associate the outcome of these things with, uh, or the outcome of political elections with the furthering of God's, of God's purposes and plans. So you have a, a full-scale, hardcore investment in, in, in one party or the other, or one candidate or another, to further the Christian nationalistic goal of establishing the kingdom of God on earth, and that, of course, being centered here in the United States. So I've said before, I think I think it's a hugely broad and mistaken category, but we maybe we want to talk about that later. But I think that basically gives you the outlines of what it is or what it, what people mean when they're when they're using that language. So they're not even talking about the way I broke the actual two words in the statement down: love of Christ and love of country. That's that's actually unrelated to what. Nope. Yeah, that's why that's why I don't like the term because I mean you can yeah. be a Christian and, and love your country and think. And, uh, Traditionally, a nationalist isn't necessarily a fascist. I think, right. or isn't necessarily someone who thinks their country is God's gift to everybody else. It's just somebody who is maybe, for lack of a better word, a very strong patriot and wants uh, the best for his country and does love his country more than other countries. Um, and that's not. There's nothing unbiblical about being a nationalist in that sense. Um, and there's nothing, of course, unbiblical about being a Christian either. So sure. you can be a Christian nationalist in the. Uh, essential meaning of those two words, but the way that that, that term is being used is, yeah. is, has been, has warped that. I, it's interesting. Cause I, I think that when you lay it out like that, 
I mean, I, I hope it goes out saying I disagree or I agree with your negative assessment of that. Um, but I think that it's actually being used more sort of flippantly to kind of paint with a very, very broad brush, anyone who would deign to argue for, well, I mean, not to, to take, um, what was it, former Secretary Pompeo's oft-tweeted uh, picture, you know, America first um, or whatever, you know, or some, some idea of, of uh, any idea that would sort of float something that even, you know, remotely echoed something like that, however vaguely would be immediately branded as Christian nationalism, you know, with, with a negative brush. And I think that's part of the degradation of our of our conversation because i think like you pointed out it's a much it's a broad term so broad that it's almost impossible to even use it in in any meaningful way without qualifying it which in and of itself is a long conversation you know here's what i'm not talking about and yet here's what i'd like to put forward as a as a idea for furthering the interest of the constituents who i represent if i'm a politician for instance you know or something like that and that's not a negative thing although in certain people's mindset it's unforgivable you know it'd be an unforgivable thing to to perpetrate so i feel for well for a lot of people who are being sort of called you know this derogatory term christian nationalist um who are you know in my experience with many of them just what i would consider to be just sort of patriotic americans you know who who maybe they were former military or they know someone who served or they and they um you know have sort of a kind of an idealistic view of america despite its history and you know there needs to be some of that idealism taken away but but in some people's minds all of it needs to be <laughs> taken away and in fact needs to be reprogrammed with um a much darker much less shining uh, you know, it's not a shining city on a hill. It's a dark abyss that um, needs to be further sunk into the nothingness, you know? So I, I don't know, it's, a, it's a difficult thing. And, and I think, yeah, I mean, I think to, to all the points that you pointed out are why we should be wary of the actual reality of Christian nationalism. Uh, but at the same time, the line between that and wanting to be a, um, to, to further the interests of your own country and pray for its success and, and prosperity. I mean, it's a fine one, I think. That's a fine line. It's interesting. I think it's a, a false dichotomy. And it's either you're a globalist internationalist who wants, which is good, or you're a, a, you're a Christian nationalist MAGA uh, racist. Right. <laughs> you know, well, so there's no, no between, or you're right. so totally blind to your, to your nation's history of, of evil. Right, um, right. And, and there's, there's a clear middle way that I think most Europe, well, Europeans, not most. Some Europeans can find with their own nation. I mean, if you live in France, for example, you have a, a, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of participation in bad things, or, right. or Germany, right, right, <laughs> right. But you can still, or Belgium, love France, or I mean, any of them. Right? You know, you're all. I mean, you yeah. all got right. But you can still love France. You can still say, okay, yeah, yeah, my my, my country did some stupid, horrible things in the past, and uh, and yet I'm a Frenchman or a Frenchwoman, and I love the culture, I love the land, I love the home. Uh, it's my home, and and it's for me the best. And so I'm going to vote in ways and act in ways that can promote its interests. But um, I think that's in part because they're united ethnically. I mean, I think there's a there's a nation and ethnos um, ethne to was. the French people to the well. I mean, I, but I think that's part of how you can deal with you know the, my own family. The ills of my grandfather are not as egregious to me as they are to you, perhaps you know, or something like that. And I think the difficulty we run into is because America essentially was an was a you know sort of post an enlightenment 
experiments, you know, I mean, it was, it was, they saw the French Revolution and they tried to avoid the excesses of it, but it was this idea that, you know, in theory, uh, knit together all of these disparate ethnicities into one American people, you know, this is the, was sort of the, the idea. Mm-hmm. And the problem, I think the difficulty we have is that when our ideas are, are, proven to be wrong in some cases, but certainly not as, as, as clear-cut as we thought they were um, on either side, well, then we, we react and we push back. And I think that's the difficulty. I mean, that's, you know, Nick and I were talking before you came on about the clearest illustration of this is the 1619 Project over against the 1776. Yeah. I mean, it's like reading, you know, same, these people are not, no matter what says anyone on either side says, they're not fools, you know, they're highly educated. I mean, they're various expertise in, in different levels, but listening to one side about the other, you'd think that they were all the most blindly ignorant people that have ever yeah. set pen to paper, you know, <laughs> and yet the Eloy and the Morlocks. That's right. But, but, but you have two, you know, faith-based idealized ver- versions of the founding of the country, the purpose of the country, and its its present and future. And, you know, to say that there's, I think there is a middle, like we actually live in between those two, but I think we're still guided by one, like what seems to be, and come back at me or help me think through this, that seems to be guided by one of those compelling visions even if we actually muddy through somewhere in the middle. And I think that's really what's at the heart of the debate is that are we, are we irrepressibly and essentially um, unforgivably broken from the outset, or is it a uh, messy vision that is still progressing towards something good? You know, and I think we've talked about this before, but I'm not sure how to convince someone who has a deep held notion of one of the other that they're right or that they're wrong um, or that they need to change other than, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't, I don't really know how to do it. I don't, I mean, I know it's being tried, you know, but it seems that the divide is just getting larger. Because it's, it's a question of identity again, right? That, that people, people are more, I don't know if they're more willing than ever, but they seem awfully willing to make an identity for their opponent based on whatever the thing is, whether it's affirmation of the 1619 project or affirmation of the 1776 commission (laughs) that comes with a whole ream of identifiers. You are this, you are this, you are this. And this is, you know, the Bible doesn't talk a lot about national lines. It certainly talks about peoples and the nations but it urges us, it commands us, in fact, to find our identity elsewhere. Right. Yeah. And, you know, this plays into the other kind of the part of the question you asked at first, Nick, was the, what is you know, the, the use of the, the ubiquitous term white evangelical to uh, usually on those, usually by those in the progressive right. realm to identify um to identify, identify the Trump voter, right? Yeah. You, uh, why did you know the reason that Trump has been so successful in being such a wicked man is because of because the of buy-in the white, of white evangelicals. Yeah, the buy-in yeah. of white evangelicals, um, which again is a, a massively broad category. I mean, we've we've talked before about how the term evangelical is that does hardly has any meaning anymore because it's been so misused and abused. But then white evangelical. <laughs> But then 
characterizing it as white evangelical support for Trump is is also hugely problematic. Because I, I think there's. Clear, I, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but just as a matter of clarity, in my experience of the use of that term, they're not identifying a group and then identifying a smaller group within that group. Like there are evangelicals, and then there are white evangelicals. They're use, It seems to me anyway that they're using the term like a stamp. Anybody who has this set of beliefs is a white evangelical, even if they're not white. Like you have, you have somebody like Vadi Bakum who is labeled in this white evangelical group. And the sort of assumption is that evangelicalism, however one comes to define that word, is synonymous with whiteness, which as we know in the ACNA, for instance, and worldwide Anglicanism is completely ridiculous. Yeah, it's, 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 it is, it is, that, that's a critical theory move. It just, it just the, the, the uh, anytime you see someone labeling a black person white, <laughs> then you know you're dealing with critical theory. Uh, you know that you know they're not, they're not really talking about skin color. Um, they're talking about ide- ideology. But yeah. secondly, okay, so I think what's going on is there is within, uh, for lack of a better descriptive word, within the evangelical community, there is a, a group, a very strong and virulent movement um, that I've referred to before as the New Apostolic Reformation. Others have talked about it too, who are who are gathered. These evangelicals are gathered on these people who compl- who claim to be Latter Day Apostles, um, through whom Christ is speaking and Christ is. Uh, beginning to unleash uh, new and mighty powers on the earth, and um, and they're preparing this nation to be one of the one of the beacons of the new order, the new world that will be established when when Christ returns. Um, and so, within that realm, in 2016, a lot of the new Apostolic Reformation prophets, Paula White's one of them, actually, were pointing to Trump as God's you know chosen vehicle to bring about national revival. And a return to a return to, to to values that that had been lost, and so that and that, that was kind of a small movement at first, but it's it's just it, it exploded over the last four years within the within charismatic circles of the evangelical world, so that people who I think under normal circumstances would be considered insane by my mother because of their advocacy for Donald Trump. And their their employment of the prophetic paradigm surrounding Trump have become incredibly influential and powerful mm. within within again charismatic circles, and these are the guys who who I think have gone a long way in creating a new kind of cult mm. around around Trump. He is God's chosen messenger. He is God's David. He is God's Cyrus. He's God's whatever it might be. Um, and 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 it, it, which which is, which has been extremely seductive for Christians who who don't have a good in their head distinction between America and God's kingdom. I yeah. think there that is something that's going on. Um, so there is that. I think that that when people use that term white evangelical, they if they're not CT people, I think that that they're taking that that influential growing group and extrapolating the assumptions of that group mm. uh, to the point where it now covers everybody who's white evangelical. Interesting. So if you're a white evangelical, you have, you think you also have messianic expectations about Trump and, and you also think that God's, God's going to use Trump to make this, 
nation a better place. That's fascinating. I have to admit, I had I knew nothing of I know nothing about what you were just talking <laughs> um, until now. So I mean, I I guess I I guess in theory, uh, but I've never personally met anyone at least who's made an argument to me along those lines. Maybe I just haven't been listening, or maybe I. Uh, but but I'm not just you, you an example. You you go on your Facebook page today. And you say or some, or say something, just say, I did this, I did this like yeah. two weeks ago. I said, I voted for Trump this time haltingly or unenthusiastically, but I did for the sake of abortion and those, you know, you know yeah. go on the list. Boy, I was did called you leftist. Get fired? Really? I was called leftist. Uh, Anne was called leftist because I was kind of bouncing off an article that she wrote. People came on and said, oh, you are, you are, you don't dare. Wow. Uh, talk about trump that way you, you know he's for for some people he is righteous almost close to infallible um and if you criticize him they treat you as if they're religious devotees and their god has been blasphemed huh. it's it is there you just try sure. minimal criticism of trump in, in a in a conservative facebook page or a conservative uh, realm on online you'll see it it's, it's remarkable Hmm. I'm not going to do that, <laughs> but I have, I believe you. I believe you. I mean, I think, see, here's, here's the problem I have with the term white evangelical. Um, when it's used, it's almost entirely by people who otherwise have contempt for Christians of any genuine faith at all. Um, you know, I'd wish that they go back to calling us the pejorative uh, that I heard growing up, the born agains. You know, that was the way to distinguish between my sort of mainline church friends and and well, me and my family that, you know, we went to one of those born again churches, you know, where you, um, you know, and then, or as, as one church leader once told me about a, I'm trying to keep these the guilty from being revealed, but let's just say a, um, a, a rector midstream in a prominent church, quote unquote, found Jesus, you know, that was how that was described as becoming an evangelical, you know? And so I think from a broad brush, you know, whatever the, the excesses of it are that you've laid out, Matt, and I um, sort of certainly, I hope it goes again without saying reject those. The, the term is often used uh, as a pejorative to anyone who, for instance, believes in conversion, you know, who thinks that, um, that the Bible is actually yeah. authoritative, that has some convictions that are not grounded just in their own subjective sense of self. And I ran into this firsthand in an article that I referenced in a class I taught this past week, where it says Christians must come to grips with with their white supremacy. Yeah. And one of the arguments that this woman was making was that just the very fact of having converted people when the Puritans arrived on American soil and you know had an evangelistic effort for the Native Americans was a symbol of our um, white supremacy. And I think that's if that's where you are, then you have so rejected any comprehension or uh, uh, of what Christians have have said and are saying and will say, God willing, until he comes again, then then I'm not sure there's a lot uh, a lot middle ground between those yeah. two positions. Um, and, and this is what we've seen. I mean, evangelism in the mainline church, and I found this firsthand in the Church of England and in um, the Episcopal Church, is, is fundamentally considered to be a cultural supremacist, if not white supremacist move, uh, to imply or infer that somehow you're um, what's 
crazily understood as a white value from a from a Jewish, you know, carpenter uh, in, in, uh, uh, through North Africa. Anyway, I mean, the the, the, the mistakes abound. But you know, I, I ran into this that the actual um, preaching of the gospel was considered to be a, um, a sort of an act of, yeah. of cultural supremacy, and so that's where we are. I mean, that's that's where we are, and so I think you know, pulling back from that is going to be, or finding a middle ground and that's going to be difficult. This is another great blessing that we have existing in the church in which we exist, because you cannot survive with your eyes open in worldwide Anglicanism and think of Christianity or evangelicalism as in any way white, not to mention starting out that way. I mean, as Matt so eloquently said once, his, his white ancestors were worshiping trees when when non-whites brought the good news to them and this is the the christian message is in no way a white message that's right and that but that does come back full circle to what's considered to be um christian nationalism because you know with all the excesses that we can point out and they're easy to find and they're often very loud and garish and so you know we want to just make the qualifications we're not supporting all of that there is some fundamental sort of Judeo-Christian values that at the very least are enshrined in the Constitution and in the Declaration of Independence, however imperfectly realized, as we all know, you know, over time, that are going to be difficult to maintain without a, um, at the very least, a deistic uh, view, if not an actual Judeo-Christian uh, mindset. I mean, dig, you know, human dignity, you know, the value of, of um, individual rights, I mean, private property, like these things are fundamentally religious convictions, you know, faith-based convictions that we see other cultures that were not grounded in a Judeo-Christian Western civilization mindset do not have the same intrinsic values. You know, the sociologists of the 1930s were wrong. You know, there wasn't this, there isn't this great arc of, um, I was just reading about this, you know, there was this standard that they would put around cultures around the world. And of course, Western civilization was at the apex of it. But there was basically just this belief that whatever you ran into, you know, sort of where you get the language about first, second and third world, you know, they had this sort of criteria for various cultures. And so the idea was wherever you jumped into a culture, they were just at a certain level of development, like a human body would be, you know, that's an adolescent, that's an adult, that's a, and so, you know, you, you had this, you had this idea that eventually all the cultures were going to reach the same conclusions, right? Well, that has proven to be, um, you know, much more, uh, well, let's just say the data is not fitting with the, with the hypothesis, as it were. And part of the problem is because we see that, that these, that some of these ideas, these great ideas that particularly lie at the heart of the founding of America are ones that require commitment to, you know, and when we lose them, when we lose the fundamental commitment, then we're going to be in danger of losing the, the, the results. Like, for instance, what is the purpose of a freedom of religion for a country that's not primarily religious, you know, in, in any shape or form? Like, that's a real question, you know? What is the, um, what is when the government becomes uh, unquestioningly good and powerful, well, then the, uh, the, the, the question of whether or not you should have an armed constituency that in the event of an overreach could push back. I mean, that becomes unthinkable. And in fact, seditious, perhaps, you know, to even mention. So these are just the way that that the the confusion going forward is being perpetuated by the the false hope, and we've talked about this before, that somehow the benefits of Western civilization, which were founded on uh, Judeo-Christian, you know, convictions about at the very least a divine judge, 
you know, that stayed the hand of many a tyrant over the history. That they try to have the benefits of that without the the bones, you know, the 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 engine, the car without the engine. And what we're starting to see is that it coasted along for a couple of centuries, but now it's starting to, if it hasn't stopped, it's a, it's slowing down and it's going to start going backwards if we're, you know, I mean, hopefully not um, under our watch, but, you know, we should be at the very least prepared if, if that is what happens that, um, you know, the Lord will remain in the throne, but, um, but it might be a little bit more difficult going forward for us. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is why you see the, the divide in our nation as, as as severe as it is. And there's a, the people who who believe in uh, God and especially the Judeo-Christian understanding of morality uh, versus those who who have no no grounding in it whatsoever. Uh, you just have a different idea of what 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 the purpose of life is, who what humanity is. Uh, what a, what a government should be doing, That's right. um, and, and so without a kind of common understanding of these things, we're we're no longer one nation. We're just we're just not. Um, how long we can continue as one nation? I don't know. Maybe indefinitely, but we're not. We are we are we are such a divided place because that those old structures, those old philosophies and paradigms upon which this nation was built and most people agreed with at the time have just yeah. gone and now, now they're now they're minority positions yeah yeah i mean it's it's really hard to to figure out i mean other i mean hopefully peacefully and hopefully with you know hopefully with some um you know benign indifference we'll be able to live together you know in various states um but the idea that there's common ground between for instance people who believe that well, in God or not God, but then by extension, you know, he created the male and female, or I create yeah. myself uh, male or female. There's very little, very little commonality between those two. And I think, you know, again, it gets back to what we keep talking about is that there's a, the Bible is our guide in this. And it's it, Nick and I were talking before, you know, even with respect to histories, you know, imagine how the Israelite, I mean, imagine how the Egyptians described their interactions with the Israelites. You know, it wasn't, uh, we were the bad guys. Um, <laughs> Their God, God saved their them good from God us. God saved, <laughs> saved, you know, we, this crazy group of cultists um, had this sort of weird idea and, and thank God they left because they couldn't make bricks very well, you know, something like this. And so it's like, there's an either or, you know, at the heart of human existence, you know, that Paul points out in Romans one, you know, the, the things of God are either clear um, and proclaim his handiwork, or we willfully exchange the truth for a lie and worship ourselves. And then we're just seeing the fruit of that now. And I think, you know, I hope and pray, obviously, for peace in the midst of this. I mean, I think that's primarily what, you know, praying for your leaders and your authorities, like Romans 13, you know, hoping that uh, that God, that, that um, the law is a terror to evil conduct. You know, hopefully there's some consensus of evil and good, some hope for, for law and order, you know, some peace, you know, we want our kids to be able to play outside at night without armed guards. You know, this is what we hope for. But in the midst of that, we shouldn't also pretend that we're going to find sort of a consensus point between those two extremes. And I think, I think it's going to be uh, the divide. That divide is just going to get clearer and clearer as we can harness more and more technology to become more and more autonomous. Um, you know, once we begin, God forbid, but it seems like it's already the case, you know, with CRISPR technology to um, start manipulating the human genes. I mean, that's part in part one of the argument about even the, the vaccine. You know, we start messing with DNA, you know, you've got some, some real power there. 
you know um i mean i was just reading a book i've been reading a book about the history of thought in america so it's sort of prescient for this conversation but you know about all of the scientists who were horrified when they finally uh detonated the first atom bomb you know like almost to a person they were like what you know what have we done that was the beginning you know it's like the guy that's playing with around with crispr technology like what you know this is similar sort of power but it's the old axiom you know that if, if the ability exists to do it someone's going to do it somewhere so the defense for us doing it is like we'd rather be able to do it than someone else it's like well that's still a quite a powerful um powerful thing to to have control over you know, i think a, a lot of people maybe heard the term christian nationalists for the first time or, or at least they heard it spoken uh, used more often after the capital what do you want to call it uh, insurrection or, or or invasion or however you want to how do you want to term I, it? That's I actually when, saw one headline that used the, you used the phrase attempted coup. Yeah. Like, oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. If that was an attempted coup, that was the worst. <laughs> yeah. The worst one. Yeah. yeah. It's just it's like to get your. Yeah. So, so, uh, so I, I bring that up because a minute ago, I think J.D. said, or maybe it was Nick, we were in the best denomination because because we are, we're a multi ethnic uh i said we were blessed i don't know if i said we were in the best denomination best best situated (laughs) maybe it was you jd one of you one of you are guilty i'm not sure which one but um but uh, (laughs) but you know in the aftermath of that tish harris uh, warren who's uh, an acna ordained person wrote an article about the white evangelicals and and how the insurrection for lack of a better word should be laid at the feet of white evangelicals because you know that 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 has been that all the rhetoric about Trump and, and messianic uh, messianic surrounded by messianic language uh, means that it lent to evangelicals a sense that he's God's man, and so we've got to do anything we can to keep him in. And it, it was just, it was a strange article. It was slanderous, I think. Uh, Denny Burke wrote an article kind of yeah, pushing back on her about this. It was it was rather slanderous. Going back to that distinction I was making earlier, I. You know, I think there are some who who think that way about Trump, but the vast majority, I'm, I'm, I'm persuaded, the vast majority of evangelicals, white or black, who voted for Trump did so not because of designs, eschatological designs uh, for the establishment of God's kingdom through Trump, but because to you know, stop the Holocaust of babies or to yeah. uh, prevent our religious liberties from being taken away, taken away. That's right. Um, but the language, you know, that, that, that language that, that uh, Harrison used in that article, which is also being used by other quote unquote orthodox evangelicals or orthodox Anglican people, orthodox with regard to sexuality, that's that language, you know, suggests that the, the, the kind of progressive buy-in uh, with critical theory and anti-colonialist thought all of that yes. is, is finding its way into our our denomination um and and we need to be careful and watch out for that because we're gonna we're, we're, we're pretty close to if that if that happens we're gonna find ourselves in a denomination that's split right down the middle in ways in many ways just like the country split right down the middle well, here's the, I mean, we've talked about this before, is that what um, the Anglican, the Canterbury Trail, as it were, um, is very attractive, evidently, to uh, progressive evangelicals. Um, because, you know, if, you, if you're if you okay with 
you, you haven't become so embarrassed of the Bible that you're gonna you're gonna support gay marriage, for instance. Um, but you're basically embarrassed of all of the other unwashed masses of Christians who run around uh, supporting Trump in this case. Um, well, then now you found a vehicle that can get you some some print and purchase in other you know vehicles of cultural influence um, by talking about. Uh, white evangelicals, you know, as if they were, um, they were all these um, deplorable people, you know, <laughs> to use a, a common term. And I think the difficulty for me, and this is just having now had discussions with, with non-Christian people around the world for my adult life, is that, is it almost without exception, when you're speaking to a non-Christian sort of intellectual person, when you actually begin to articulate just genuine uh, foundational Christian beliefs about God and the world and humanity, then they, they just flatly reject you, like without question. It can be very polite. I mean, I had a philosophy professor from the University of Vienna at a cocktail party, you know, very politely question whether I was insane, you know, it's sort of when, when I was describing, you know, the atonement, you know, why was the cross, why is the cross such a big deal? And we started talking and, and you know, you hear yourself articulating these things and you're like, well, if I didn't believe this, I think it would sound rather, rather, uh, you know, I would have made it up the same way. And so my problem with all of these discussions is that if you're going to try to sanitize Christianity to make your version of it acceptable and palatable to palatable, to, uh, palpable, excuse me, to um, palatable, 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 right. If you want to make it so they could eat it, right. Um, <laughs> that, uh, to the New York Times or to the Atlantic or to, um, well, increasingly Christianity today, um, well, then you're actually going to be eviscerating uh, some of the most foundational beliefs, or you're going to have to at least ignore them or, or dodge them. Because if you actually just start articulating what we genuinely believe, it's not going to matter whether you're a white, um, you know, evangelical or a archbishop from Africa, like you're going to be rejected. And I think that's what bugs me about the whole conversation. It's, it's fascinating. I, you were talking, I was thinking about this. If you are to make Christianity palatable to our present cultural elite, you have to do essentially the very same thing. I mean, and actually the, the contours of it that Frederick Schleimacher did. You, yeah. you have to reduce you have to reduce the faith to some kind of internal That's right. uh, spiritual stance, utter dependence or whatever Schleimacher had, utter dependence. Absolute dependence, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. but so, so you'd have to make the same kind of move now. So what Christianity is just the rediscovery of the inner self, the rediscovery of the, of the light within or whatever, you know, like Richard Rohr is trying to do. Um, but yep. that's you. You got to shear off all of the historical yes. claims. You got to you got to take off all of the the claims about who Jesus is, what he actually did, and who you are, and what why you need what he did to be done. That's right. Well, this is a move. This was a conscious move that has been documented. Again, it goes back. I highly recommend this class called "The American Mind" by I forget his first name. Gelzo is his name. But this was a conscious move made in like the twenties and thirties within mainline denomination denominations, which was a uh, after the Civil War, there was a lot of cynicism in America, and a lot of the idea of city on a hill, and you know the um, you know I mean read Lincoln's second inaugural, and you'll get the idea that the Civil War was God's judgment, you know, on us. I mean, so anyway, but 
So to rebuild Christianity, you got the social gospel, you know, Roush and Bush and these guys at the turn of the century. And there was a consensus, there was a conscious decision made between two competing camps. One was the socialists who said the, the American experiment is so flawed, the, the Civil War proved it, we need to burn it down and rebuild it, which is alive and well today. And then you had the core of conservatives who had rejected all the supernatural aspects of Christianity, but did see in the cultural relic of it, something that should be preserved. And so you had this interesting influx into the main line. This is Roman Catholic and Protestant, this sort of civic religion that emphasized church, the vehicle of the church, even if we had taken away any of the actual beliefs associated with it, because the societal good was to be preserved. And so you had this really interesting creation of the agnostic pastor, you know, that filled all the pulpits, particularly the Episcopal church. You know, this was like when in the 1940s and 50s were, were the flowering of this, this sort of civic religion where, you know, don't push too hard on what we actually believe, but isn't the, you know, the appeals to architecture, history, and our um, sort of civilization are uh, sort of, they're, they're sort of immortalized in this, albeit somewhat antiquated structure. And that could only lasts so long and that's what we're seeing that we're but 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 that it existed and and that it's uh and and that it still had some power is what people point back to when they think of like you know the high point of of you know the, the republican party at prayer sort of thing uh because you had that very schleiermachian idea and again unsurprisingly it says someone who has a phd from from literally the, the university of berlin where schleiermacher got its name the schleiermacher school of theology you had a ton like to get your bona fides back in the late 19th century in theology and all sorts of different disciplines you went to germany you know to learn these things so it's unsurprising that a lot of the the ideas you know people sat under under hegel sat under with schleiermacher and then would come back and teach in the relative seminaries and so so you have the perpetual problem is that christian faith will be despised and and denigrated by its its um detractors It'll be foolishness to some, stumbling block to others, but for those of us being saved, it's the power of God. You know, that's the cross. And so I think white Christian nationalism is a new bugaboo that um, is going to find some traction with the same people that if it hadn't been Trump and it had been someone else, it would be named something different, but it would be the same ultimate rejection of some claim to a divine authority that is above and beyond you and me and therefore speaks to us with, with, uh, a, has a claim on us that, um, that you feel free to reject, but at your own peril. I mean, that's. I, on that note, I mean, these things always fail. It, 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 it's, it's fascinating. Uh, uh, the living church of all places of all publications, put out an article, it was two weeks ago, maybe last week, on this, the Episcopal Church's decline. And the first paragraph of the of the article was citing, you know, Bishop Spong's, uh, how, why the church must change or die, right? That's right. <laughs> and so the Episcopal Church bought hook, line, and sinker Spong's premise that, that well, we have to, we have to accommodate the expectations of the times if we're going to gain the modern person um and just it just was gutted it was gutted and so now it's just this kind of hulking shell of of, of heresy and perversion um and property ownership <laughs> property right, right. Like with lots of money i think and, that's i think that's one of the new uh villains in the marvel universe the hulking <laughs> shell of of uh, heresy and perversion <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I think they're going to get uh, Vince Vaughn to play that. Um, but nobody wants. I mean, it's it, that's 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 why we I, maybe we've talked about this before in, a, in the past broadcast. That's why they're kind of a revisionist, uh, theologically liberal uh, church always has to glom onto something living because it's dead it's dying so it's got to it's got to find its way its niche into a living denomination a living church and then suck out all the life but still hold on to the institution itself so it can have some kind of credibility in the world and so the episcopal church was a great target right because it is it was the institution the you know church of america for lack of a better name like instead of the church of england church of america all the elites went to it so hey let's let's glom ourselves onto that structure yep suck out the the life of it and then and take it over and now they have but then there's nothing left so what are they going to do right. they have to go to Can't last. evangelicalism and yeah. well i told i was told by someone again a, a man who's much older than i am who got into the ministry because his choice he was like well i wanted to be a social worker and someone's advice to him was well a great way and a lot of money uh, good things can be done if you join the episcopal church and work through that and that's literally why he got into the ministry now he had a he had a conversion experience later on in his life but but that's that just that's all you need to know about the problems that lie at the heart of um progressive christianity you know is that it's not christian i mean that's like the yeah. Mason's famous book you know christianity or liberalism like it wasn't <laughs> liberal christians it was um and that book uh, has stood the test of time uh primarily because he saw it clearly you know back when they were you know at the time the virgin birth was always the sort of litmus test you know do you do you wink wink nudge nudge about the virgin birth you know and if you have a problem believing that god can do a miracle with respect to birth and you obviously have a problem believing in god like that's the problem like it's not that he it's not the the mystery of the virgin birth it's the fact that you don't believe that there's a god because gods can by definition do things like miracles you know um and i think that that's what's that's the saddest part about all of this is that there's this attempt to to apologize for the the rather radical or increasingly radical um, statement that there is in fact a God, you're not him. He does what he wants and this is how he has, this is what he's done for us and this is what he's told us to tell you about him. And if you're embarrassed and you need to apologize for that, well then, you know, you may need to, um, we shouldn't be ordained first. And then secondly, you, you should, um, you know, withdraw from speaking about um, Christians as a generalized whole at all, you know, but, that's not, I don't see that happening anytime soon. <laughs> As we uh, approach the end of our time here, I'm mindful of a good way to wrap this up. I think JD, you spoke a few moments ago about the friend who thought you were crazy when you actually began to elucidate for him what biblically Orthodox Christians actually believe. And I'm also reminded, I think a couple weeks ago, Matt was saying that he is capable of having a much more respectful and honest engagement with an Orthodox adherent of another religion than he is with somebody who professes to be a Christian, but doesn't actually believe any of these crazy things. And I'm sitting here thinking that this is why quote unquote progressive Christianity and this sort of thing can never last and has to be this thing that cloms onto other things that actually have life because despite thinking that you're crazy at the cocktail party, when that friend of yours, when his life rises up and slaps him in the face and he doesn't know where to turn, he might think about that one guy at that one Amen. party who said some things that sounded crazy, but those crazy things offered life Amen. in the face of death. Whereas somebody who 
is making things up as they go along and unwilling to hold on to anything that is remotely uncomfortable, doesn't have any answers that might raise somebody from the dead. And, yeah. and that is the good news that actual Christianity does in fact have. Yeah. And that's why the, and that's why at the end of the day, you know, the caricatures and that's what they are that are painted in um, non-Christian places like the New York times and, and increasingly Christianity today about how awful and evil and terrible all these quote unquote evangelicals are. It's just simply untrue. And it's, un, you know, we all know a couple of odd balls in our lives and families, and perhaps there are a handful of getting together, but in general, you know, the, 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 the normative pattern for the born again evangelical is a life that is increasingly molded into the likeness of Christ. I mean, that's the pattern. And so the fruit of the spirit is evident in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. And, and yes, there is the persistence of sin, but the, again, the normative pattern is the Christian who prays for his or her enemy, who forgives, who is long suffering, who is, um, who is to a certain degree less afraid of death than the non-Christian. Like, and so, you know, they can paint all of these nasty, evil people pictures of people that I have thankfully have very little in common with, I'd like to think, or have run into contact with, frankly, and continue to to hold on by God's grace to the this radical message with all of its audacious claims and and walk and witness into the world. And that's not going to make me very popular. Some of the convictions with the editorial board of the New York Times or um or whatever but you know you got to come to grips with that early on i guess um or or maybe it, you'll be sucked into sucked into what what is the superhero matt the uh hulking, hulking shell hulking shell <laughs> yeah so it's like it's like venom you know it's like a suit that gets you the hulking shell of heresy, heresy and, and perversion hulking shell of heresy and perversion yeah <laughs> That's good. That's a good note to end on, right? Yeah, I think so. Well, we have we have come to uh, the end of our time this week. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, as I hope you do, we hope you'll be in touch with us. You can rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email to mailbag at standfirminfaith.com. Thanks, as always, to Matt Kennedy and to J.D. Koch. I'm Nick Lannon. We'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 oh,